0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Jeff Richards is a managing partner at GGV Capital. He has been at the firm since 2008 and previously spent 13 years as an entrepreneur and operating executive in the U.S. and Asia. Jeff founded two technology startups, including R4, which was acquired by Verisign. In this conversation, we discuss Jeff's investment strategy, the company Wish, Coinbase, Lambda School, Slice, his biggest winners and losers, the advantages to being a public company, the resiliency in Silicon Valley, and various geographic investment markets around the world. I really, really enjoyed this conversation with Jeff, and I think you will as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors, first up is BlockFi. I'm an investor and I sit on the board and I'm a very happy user. These folks have built three products so far. You can deposit crypto and take out a US dollar loan against your crypto collateral. You can buy and sell crypto on their crypto exchange, or you can deposit crypto or a stablecoin and earn up to 8.6% APY in an interest bearing account. Those three products are great But they're also getting ready to launch a credit card that pays the rewards in Bitcoin rather than airline miles or cash back. That's right. A Bitcoin rewards credit card is coming from BlockFi, and it's going to be awesome. Go check them out today to use that lending product, that crypto exchange, or that interest-bearing account at BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP. They're awesome. I love it. And you will too blockfi.com slash pomp. Next up is a company that provides the product Choice by Kingdom Trust. They're a new self-directed IRA product that I'm really excited about. If you're listening to this, you're likely part of the 7.1 million Bitcoin owners who have retirement accounts with dollars in them, but not Bitcoin. I used to be in that situation too, but no longer because Choice got me hooked up. You can now actually buy real Bitcoin in your retirement account. I'm talking about owning your private keys and using tax advantage dollars to do it too. So Choice is a self-directed IRA product. You buy Bitcoin, you hold your private keys, and you get to use tax advantage dollars to do it. Absolute game changer. Go get a self-directed IRA account with Choice so that you can buy Bitcoin, hold the private keys in that retirement account. Go to retirewithchoice.com POMP. Again, retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. I've got an account. And now when people ask me, how do I buy Bitcoin in my retirement account? I send them to choice. retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Lastly, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 80,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy-to-understand language while sharing my personal opinion on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at Pompletter.com. Again, Pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Jeff. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by POMP as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got a special treat. I've got Jeff here with me. Thanks so much for doing this, sir. Good morning or good afternoon. Your time. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, let's jump right into your background. Kind of, What did you do before GGV?
1: So I grew up in uh, Seattle, uh, moved to the East Coast in 1990 to go to college uh, up in New Hampshire at Dartmouth, played basketball for four years there, and then moved to Silicon Valley in 1995. I did a short stint in a ski town called Ketchum, Idaho, in between. Uh, I learned a lot there, and then uh, moved to San Francisco in 95. Uh, I worked in consulting for three years with PwC in the US and Hong Kong, so got my first kind of taste of working in Asia uh, 95, 96. And then I started my first tech company in 1997 when I was 25 years old, started a software company called quantum shift. Uh, we grew it from zero to 30 million in sales in three years, which was awesome. Uh, the only, the only sidebar to that is we raised $125 million along the way. And, and we were going to go public in 2000 and then the market cratered and we got punched in the face. And, uh, you know, as Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. And we got punched Uh, so it just was, it was brutal. Um, and the the business, we lost half our revenue in six months and, and, uh, ended up kind of splitting up the company and selling it. I left in 2002. So I started when I was 25, left when I was 30, walked away with nothing. Uh, you know, at one point I was, was running a fairly valuable company and walked away with zero. So I learned a lot, got married, started my second company in 2003. We sold that to Verisign, which is a public tech company. Uh, I then spent three years at VeriSign and then I joined GGV Capital in uh, May of 2008. So I've been here for 13 years. It's been great.
0: GGV has uh, one of the most interesting foundations, I think, in terms of you guys are a global venture capital firm. Uh, you manage, uh, I think it's five or $6 billion. Maybe talk a little bit just about why join GGV and then kind of how do you think about the way you guys invest or the themes you're looking at?
1: Yeah. So we're um, yeah. You met. So we're a six and a half billion dollar global venture capital firm. We operate as one team across the world. So that's a, a unique aspect of our business. Most funds split it up, and i will have like an Israel fund, a China fund, and a U.S. fund. We operate as one team. We have about ninety people in the U.S., uh, Singapore, uh, uh, Beijing, and Shanghai, and we invest in India, Latin America, Southeast Asia, China, uh, and the U.S. And what that allows us to do, and I think, you know, as similar to some other global firms like ours, whether it's a Blackstone or a Goldman Sachs or a DST, is see trends and themes that are playing out globally and have that lens. You know, we always like to joke that there's only 330 million people in the US. <laughs> there's 7.5 billion people globally. So if you can address that whole audience and bet on themes, whether it's a digitization of healthcare, digital finance, fintech, SMB tech, software, internet, e-commerce, you know, why wouldn't you want to bet on those trends around the world, particularly if you can build up some expertise and build a flywheel of entrepreneurs and executives that can help you grow in those industries. And so one good example, we were an early investor in Alibaba group back in 2003, when it was a $10 million company. I think it was valued at about 200 million. This is before I joined, by the way. So when I say we, it's the royal we. But, uh, you know, that experience of watching Alibaba grow into the world's largest e-commerce platform. And oh, by the way, building relationships with all of the executives inside of that company as they went on to then start and be part of other companies, we were able to fund other e-commerce businesses around the world. And today, you know, I'm on the board of Big Commerce, which is a software company in the US in the e-commerce space. My partner, Hans, is on the board of Wish and Poshmark. We invested in Peloton. We invested in Affirm. We invested in Square. So so just a whole string of things that we've invested in that category all over the world. And so that's our big thesis is it's not about stage. It's about sector and themes and trends and getting those right at a global basis. And if you get them right, you can back multiple billion-dollar companies all over the world.
0: Yeah, what's so interesting to me here is uh, basically, once you see it in one area, you really can then go and capitalize it in other areas. How much of that is seeing the trend in the United States and then kind of going and finding it in other markets? I think that's kind of what we saw in the 2000s and maybe into the beginning of the 2010s. Or are you now seeing the reverse where you might see a trend happening in China or India or somewhere else and then trying to find that happening here in the US?
1: Yeah, it's a great point. So, you know, from 2000 to 2010, I think everybody thought of the trend of things get basically created in the U.S. and then replicated elsewhere. And that, that's still happening to some extent. But with the Internet population and over a billion users on, on mobile phones in India, China, you know, Africa, Southeast Asia, you're seeing a lot of innovation happen in those other markets. And so there are things happening like China, for example, is ahead of us on digital commerce, right? They're ahead of us on e-commerce, you know, over fifty percent of the retail market in China is now e-commerce. In, in the U.S., as of January, it was sixteen percent. It obviously spiked in the last few months. So there are things that are coming from China and from from these other markets that we're adopting and we're learning from. So you could you could argue like you know, you, you, I mean, look at TikTok, right? That came from from China. Um, so I think I think it's a little bit of both, and then it's just the the innovation around the world with access to capital flowing so freely now when things do get created in one part of the world they get they do get replicated and and innovated in different parts of the world so you're seeing you know tons of of healthcare technology which is a you know i think is amazing like think about how many billions of people around the world have never had access to good healthcare so if digitization of telemedicine digital banking things like that the faster that flows into these emerging market economies the better in my opinion but it's a little bit of both
0: yeah. Well, um, I want to go through a couple of the investments you guys have made. Maybe you can just kind of tell us the story of how you guys came across them. And I think we'll pull out some of the themes and, and experiences and, and lessons learned. Uh, the first is Wish, which is now a, a massive shopping company. Maybe you can tell us that story. Yeah,
1: it's a great story because Peter, um, uh, Peter who started the company and is a CEO today, really saw something that most people didn't see. We met Peter in early 2014, and he was sort of pivoting out of uh, an ad-driven business and into an e-commerce business. And what Peter saw, and subsequently what my, my partner Hans saw, was he was creating a mobile e-commerce platform for the mass consumer. So you think about in the US, we have Dollar General, we have Dollar Store, we have Kohl's, we have Walmart. We have all these businesses, which by the way, are hundreds of billions in annual sales that cater to you know, the mass market consumer, which would sort of be like middle income and, and down. And the venture capital community at that time was predominantly catering to upper income consumers and saying, gee, I wanna target iPhone users, you know, average household income of 100K a year, that's a great demographic, they're gonna spend a ton of money on the internet. And the thing that Han saw in 2014 was similar to what Taobao has done in China, and Taobao is part of Alibaba, it's the largest e-commerce platform in the world, cater to the mass market, right? Offer everything from you know, $2 products to $200 products but the, the high-end actually took a lot more time, right? Now, today we have open door in real estate and Carvana and cars, and the high-end is actually getting discovered. But Peter built a you know $10 billion plus company on the back of the kind of middle to, to low-end consumer. And that market is enormous, right? I mean, he calls it Amazon subprime. So these are people who, who really aren't even at the point in their life or their career where they can afford to shop on Amazon, which actually has, doesn't have the cheapest products. So I think that, that idea of catering to the mass market and oh by the way a huge percentage of their business is outside the us so understanding that people around the world want to shop not everybody makes a hundred thousand dollars a year and sends their kids to private school in atherton is a unique aspect of our business right to be able to see beyond the demographic that high-end demographic that a lot of venture capitalists and investors play in and of course now you've got companies like a firm You've got um, obviously Square, you've got a lot of companies that have started to go after that more mass-market consumer, but that's a relatively recent trend. Even the SMB tech economy that Square and you know Big Commerce and Shopify are playing in, that really started in 2010. Before that, nobody in tech really went after SMB or even the mass-market consumer. That's a relatively recent trend.
0: Yeah. You also invested in Coinbase, which is uh, kind of a counter trend. Um, You know, when that company started, there was nobody really talking about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, especially not in the mainstream media. Um, Kind of talk about where did you guys see that one and kind of what was the thesis?
1: Yeah. I think, you know, at the time, this was probably 2016 or 17. um, You know, one of the things when we talk about being sector focused and betting on trends, obviously, crypto at the time was becoming a very big trend and a very big topic. And so we spent some time doing some research, trying to figure out, understand the technology, understand how it could play out. Obviously, we had a global point of view. So we saw what was happening in Singapore, and Hong Kong, and China, in addition to the US. And we, you know, to be fair, we were, you have folks like USV and Andreessen Horowitz and and, and other funds that were ahead of the curve on that and, and did very well investing in Bitcoin and, and elsewhere. So we weren't early to that trend. but. You know, we we made a couple of small investments in some new projects and said, look, one of the things we do believe will happen if, if Bitcoin and crypto are here to stay is Coinbase will do very well. And I think that turned out to be that turned out to be a good bet. I wish we had invested more. Famous last words of every every investor. Um, but you know, we met with Brian. Just were super impressed with him, uh, the management team that he's got there, his approach to taking like a you know a very professionalized, regulated point of view in an industry that at the time, if you remember, was not. It was sort of like anti-regulation. And so for him to sort of, you know, take an approach where he said, look, I assume this is going to be regulated by the SEC. I assume we're going to have to comply with U.S. banking laws. I think it was very smart and was ahead of the time. And now you've got other exchanges that have done the same thing. But, you know, and he's gone on to build, I think, what will be a very valuable company.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I think we're seeing a lot of companies who took the opposite approach right now, kind of paying for those sins, right? Whether it's regulators stepping in or just kind of all sorts of issues. Um, so I, I tend to agree that that approach, which,
1: well. which by the way, and you know, was such short, was so short sighted, right? Like, like the the the, the economies. The if you read like any book on politics, politics and money are very tied together, right? So you know, one of the reasons the EU broke up was those countries lost control of their own currency. Right, Greece suddenly realized it had a huge problem when it couldn't value its own currency. And so the ability to sort of control currency and manage the flow of monetary supply around the world. Now, we're in a little bit of a weird situation right now where the U.S. is printing money like drunken sailors. But that is a huge part of the way politics and the economy work. And so I think I would love to see over time crypto and Bitcoin, because of the way the technology works and sort of democratizing access to it, I think it'd be great to have it be part of the economy and part of the monetary system over time, but that's not going to happen outside of government. Yeah, I, I just don't believe it will.
0: I uh, I, I tend to agree with you. Uh, another company that is kind of going up against uh, some incumbents and, and trying to disrupt things is Lambda School. Uh, there's obviously some regulation involved there, but also just some innovation. Kind of what, what was that story?
1: So, you know, one of the things I've learned in venture over time is when you get when you get people that are going after really big market opportunities with asymmetric ideas, and I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. Airbnb, asymmetric idea. People are going to sleep on couches. People are like, "What the? That, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of." But in hindsight, we look at it and they're now bigger than Marriott and Hyatt. And you know, you look at Uber, right, or Lyft, like asymmetric idea going after a massive existing industry. And those businesses could be zeros. Like I think that's the thing when people are critical of like an Elon Musk or a Magic Leap or whatever. It's like If you don't try the asymmetric idea, you never change the industry. And so, when they don't work, people think you're an idiot. But when they do work, people are like, "Oh yeah, of course Airbnb." It's like, go talk to Brian and Joe and Nate ten years ago. Like nobody thought that was an obvious idea. And I kind of I would put Austin in that same category. Like he's trying to change the way the education system works, and he's saying, "Why should I have to spend two hundred grand to go get a CS degree at Stanford to get a job at Google?" Like this that just doesn't make any sense. By the way, when I come out of it, I owe two hundred grand. I owe. Like the, the way the whole system works is the individual takes all the risk. And so what he did was basically created this concept. He didn't really create the concept, but he capitalized on the concept of the ISA, which is basically saying, look, I'll cover the cost of you getting educated, and I'll take the bet that you're going to get a job. And when you do get a job, pay me back. But it's like the opposite of the student loan model, which, by the way, we now have like one of the biggest crisis in America with all these people carrying student loans. Imagine if all those people had ISAs the market would be completely different. And so, you know, I, I think it's a good trend and you're seeing some like Purdue has, opted, has adopted an ISA model. So what, what Austin's really trying to do is one, get rid of the student loan problem and two, democratize access so that if you're a barista at Starbucks and you want to get a CS degree and go get a job at Google or Amazon or Facebook, you can do that through Lambda School. Now you have to work your ass off and it's hard. One of the things that he figured out along the way, you got to make it hard. If I'm going to take the risk on you to get a job, I've got to make it hard to ensure that you've got the the grit to actually work your ass off and go get that job and do well once you have that job. And so there's this really kind of mutually beneficial relationship where like, I need you to work hard to get the job. And when you do, you'll pay me back. And so um, it's just, you know, it's one of these asymmetric bets in a huge category. If he's right, it's going to be a, you know, it's going to be a massive Airbnb square type company, but it's a really hard business to build. And by the way, you're going after an industry where there's a lot of entrenched interests who don't want you to succeed. And so when you see negative media coverage or commentary about his business model, oftentimes that comes from sources that may have an entrenched interest in, in, in seeing his business not succeed. But you know, one of the things that I, I, I always tell people, like I have the best job in the world. One of the reasons is I get to take risks on people like Austin and say, hey, if you get this right, it's a 10, 20, 30, $40 billion dollar company. And by the way, it changes our system. And if you get it wrong... That's a bummer, but that's what we get paid to do. It would suck if it's if it's a zero, but like that's our job. Go take those risks and try and fund those ideas that can change these, change these markets. And then, you know, just like I mean, whether it's Austin or Garrett Lord at Handshake or Lear at Slice or, you know, any of the people that we back, like these people are incredible, like superhuman type people. And they're not all Elon Musk, who's the superhuman of superhumans, but it's just incredibly inspiring to meet with these people that are literally creating the jobs
0: that are powering our country absolutely you mentioned uh, you mentioned slice and uh, I know that you guys have this big uh, thesis around uh, SMB tech maybe talk a little bit about that thesis in general and then we can use slice as an example
1: so if you look back and I wrote a, I wrote a post about this uh, a few years ago if you look back at two, ten years ago there was basically one company in SMB Tech that was into it and and today there's probably 40 companies that we would put into that bucket that are valued at about a half, a, half a trillion dollars. Shopify is probably the most obvious example. It's valued at $100 But you've got Wix and Square and RingCentral and 8x8 and BigCommerce. And there's a whole bunch of companies that their entire universe is powering small business. And oh, by the way, in small business, 60% of America works for small business. It's 40% of US GDP. So we need small business to be successful. And that whole economy was created for three reasons. One, AWS, AWS launched in 2005. So suddenly made it cheap and easy to to power computing. You didn't have to host your own servers. Two, you had the iPhone. So your typical small business owner circa 2008 didn't have a computer with an internet connection in their shop. They got an iPhone and all of a sudden they did, right? And the third thing was the integration of FinTech, right? So Stripe and Braintree launched around that same timeframe. Those three factors came together to make it feasible to serve a small business customer for 100 or 200 dollars a month in a way that you couldn't do 5 years earlier and that has now powered a whole generation of companies that are being built on on that technology and you know if you just look at those companies over the last 12 to 18 months they've been ripping right as a as an investor if you own that index of companies you've done very 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 well and the reason is people have figured out that when our economy reboots we come out of coronavirus and the economy reboots i just wrote a post called the you know, the small business economy will power the the reboot of the economy and it'll be powered by technology. When we come out of that, small business is going to power it. It has to. Part of it is out of necessity. As of today, there are 40% more, more applications for new businesses in our country than there were a year ago. So one year ago today, same, same genre, same, and by the way, we were in a booming economy a year ago, 40% more people have applied for new, new companies this year. The reason is obviously a lot of them lost their job, which is not good. The positive out of that is a lot of those folks will go on and never go back and, and get a normal job again. They'll have some great small business. And that business will be built on technology. They'll have a website on Wix. They'll have you know, POS with Square. They'll use marketing from HubSpot. They'll have a phone system from Ring Central. So those companies, I just think, are not only hugely valuable today, but have a, an extremely bright future. As that, as that 40% of US GDP, more and more of those companies move on to technology. And so you, you mentioned Slice. Uh, which is near and dear to my heart because I love pizza. I know you do too. And one of my life's missions is to get you off of Domino's and onto great local pizza. But, you know, if you look at what Alir has done with Slice, he, and he's third generation pizza, right? He grew up in a, in a pizza family. He, he eats, breathes. He was probably, instead of a, a binky in his mouth, he probably had pepperoni. But like what he saw was pizza merchants, he had the rise of Domino's, which was basically building a tech stack. Now, 80% of Domino's orders are mobile and web. Your average small business merchant in the pizza industry, and by the way, there's 32,000 in America, had zero technology. Most of them don't even have a point-of-sale system. And so Lear said, I'm going to go build that technology for them, the mobile and web ordering. And then eventually, I'll be able to power their business with marketing and capital and a whole bunch of other resources to help them grow, just like Domino's helps its franchisees grow. So that business, I think think we publicly announced the other day, is now uh, eclipsed a billion in sales. Uh, and all of those are sales going to small and local merchants. But what's great about that is the momentum in that business. Alir won't like me saying this, but I bet you will eclipse two billion within 12 months. So it took 10 years to get to the first billion. The next, you know, the next billion will take 12 months, um, which is how a lot of these businesses work. So it's just a, it's a really cool story. He's doing amazing things for small merchants, and um, yeah, and a company we're really proud of.
0: And what's so interesting about Slice, right? It's not only one, a fantastic idea Two, from an execution standpoint, they've obviously done a great job, but three is, uh, it's very similar to Shopify's like arm the rebels, right? Like basically give the tools to the people who are going up against the incumbents and he doesn't say it, right? But it's basically what he's doing for these, uh, local pizzerias is saying, Hey, look, you don't have the ability to ever match from a technology standpoint, what these large people are doing. Um, and and what's really interesting, I, I was thinking through it the other day is, uh, there's a Starbucks, uh, around the corner uh, from in mean, New York, right? And everyone's always like all the big corporation. And I was in there and it's actually a franchise owned one. Mm-hmm. And so this is, you know, literally the husband and the wife are working on like a Sunday morning, you know, t- the whole thing. And so they have a very different kind of entrepreneurship experience just because they've got Starbucks behind them, right? They've got marketing right, yeah. taken care of, they've got a technology stack, they've got right. a lot of the, the systems in place, but they still have to run a business, right? They still have to try to get people to come in. And, and, and you can just tell like that Starbucks in particular has certain touches to it that maybe it yeah, probably corporate- feels
1: authentic, probably feels right. It's just a
0: little different, right? And, yeah. and, and frankly, it's, um, it's the belief that like that person cares probably more than the manager at the corporate uh, uh, store. Now, what slice seems to be doing is the exact same thing. It's just empowering everything. It's just not under one brand, right? But it's saying, Hey, we're gonna give you all the same things, We're gonna give you the systems, we're gonna give you the technology, we're gonna get help yeah. you with marketing, like, we're gonna do everything that if you were a franchisee, would get, only now you can do it under your own brand, you own your own business, and we're just simply a vendor, right?
1: Yeah, and you capture the majority of the economics. You're not paying a franchise fee to start. You're not paying royalty. So Lear calls it the reverse franchise, right? So it's sort of like, sort of like the way Uber approached the transportation industry. It said, look, we don't need to own the drivers. We're going to let them own their own business and help them generate cash flow. So, you know, yeah, we're going to existing merchants or new merchants, Powering their business with technology. We're also a marketplace. So we drive, you know, last night we ordered Slice in my house. We ordered from a, uh, a local merchant called Bella Roma. I've never been in their store, but I go on Slice every few weeks and we place an order. And of course, we have four kids and we always have friends over, so we eat a lot of pizza. So it's a marketplace. It's also a technology element as well. And then I think that, you know, one of the hidden secrets of the whole food delivery industry is, you know, DoorDash, Uber Eats, uh, Grubhub, those guys take as much as 25 or 30% of the order value. That does not work for merchants. I mean, the, the hidden secret of that industry is merchants, your average restaurant merchant nets 5% at the end of the year. So how can you pay out 30% to somebody who's delivering the food? You, you just can't. And so what we're seeing now is a gradual transition of those merchants off of those third-party delivery flat platforms onto Slice. And I think that's a trend that you'll see for the next few years. And, and yeah, you know, I think Slice will be a very big company. But one of the things I love about it is, a lear is authentic. He's not some guy who was in business school and was like, "Oh, the pizza industry is a big industry. I'm going to go build some technology." He is like, like you walk into a pizzeria with a lear, they're freaking, they're like hugging him and bringing him the special, and you know, he, he's 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 one of them. And and so yeah, that back to your point about the arm of the rebels, we've got um, slice in that space. We've got big commerce and e-commerce. We've got Brightwheel in the pre-K education space. I backed a company called Belong Home is doing it in the residential uh, real estate space. So this whole idea of like arm the small business merchant to help them compete with the big guy, I think is super powerful. And it's also, I mean, one of the challenges we're going to have coming out of this economy we're in right now is you've got your Starbucks, your Shake Shack, your Chipotle, your, um, you know, whatever that have, that have cash, right? So your, your Shake Shack with a billion dollars in their balance sheet, they can do things in terms of transforming their restaurants into pickup and delivery and, and takeaway that, you know, your average small merchant can't. And so we got to find a way, and it's a combination of not only technology, but capital. And one of the things we've lost in our country is the small regional banks. You know, the Wells Fargo's and B of A's have gobbled up all the small regional banks. And so the guy that used to sit down the street and lend you or money when we wanted to start a business is gone. What you're seeing is that get replaced with Square Capital. You know, we'll eventually have Slice Capital. Uh, Shopify has Shopify Capital. So you're seeing the technology companies create a financing arm or partner with a third party to offer financing these merchants. So I think it's a super positive trend.
0: Yeah. One of the other trends that uh, you've been pretty um, adamant about, and uh, I think founders are starting to kind of wake up to, and I know that there's a couple of other uh, venture capitalists in uh, in Silicon Valley now that are are voicing, uh, hey, this was a horrible idea, was this idea of like staying private longer. Right. And uh, I I know that you've been a big proponent. and Many of your companies uh, have gone public earlier than, you know, kind of the trend. Talk a little bit just about how you've thought about private companies getting into the public markets. Are there certain thresholds or kind of milestones that, okay, now's a good time to start thinking about that? And then just what the advantages of being a publicly traded company are versus a private uh, company?
1: Yeah. So I, I I am a big believer. Uh, I think companies should be going public earlier. If you look at back in the nineties, the average company going public had about a half a billion dollar market cap, 500 million. I mean, Amazon's market cap when it went public was 500 million. So the argument that you can't go public as a small company and be successful, I, I just like, there, there's just no data to support that. Uh, one of the greatest companies of all time went public at 500. So Um, And and so then we got into this mode, you know, over the last five to seven years, partially because of the massive influx of capital from firms like SoftBank, saying to entrepreneurs, hey, don't go public, I'll give you $500 million, just continue to grow as a private company. And look, there was some there was some validity to that, right? It was easy to take the money. It didn't require a lot of of effort. Um, It didn't require a lot of disclosure. And oh, by the way, you didn't have to comply with public company reporting and accounting requirements. And it is you know, it's a post-0809 reform. It's a two-three million dollar effort to go public, so it's not trivial, it's not cheap. But the flip side of that is, I think what it did was it also fostered a lot, a lot of undisciplined growth. So people took that capital and spent it in ways that they probably wouldn't have if they had had a public board or public shareholders. And frankly, eroded a lot of value and it took on a lot more dilution than they needed to and that you know that doesn't help us as shareholders it doesn't help the founders and i think a lot of people in hindsight are looking back and saying gosh i probably could have built this company with 2 or 300 million less and oh by the way be public today and trading at a really healthy multiple if i had just kind of taken the time to put in place all those pieces along the way so you know look we're very lucky we've had eight companies go public in the last 12 months we've got another four or five that'll get out in the next five or six months those are companies that we invested in you know 6 to 9 years ago and have spent the last 12 to 18 months preparing to be public companies. And there are things you have to do. You need an audit chair on your board. You need, you know, you need audits from a big four accounting firm. You need investor relations and kind of accounting and finance infrastructure internally that can handle it. But I think, I just think it builds more disciplined companies. And and I don't, that where the narrative comes from of like, it sucks to be public. Like I'm on the board of a public company. We've got lots of, I don't talk to any public CEOs that are like, yeah, it really sucks to be running this $20 billion company. Like it's just, it's just a false narrative. And so I, I hope that trend continues. You know the one, the one wrinkle in the conversation right now is the whole SPAC trend, uh, and whether we will have some companies that go public prematurely, that otherwise wouldn't have gone public through the normal IPO process. And I think that could color people's, you know, say, oh gosh, this company didn't do well as a public company. It's like, well, they kind of took an unconventional path to get there. We have a process set up where a bank vets the. That's the company. Now we, we could use some better uh, technology in the pricing methodology for IPOs, which Bill Gurley has talked quite extensively about. But I, I just think if that trend reverses and we see companies go public earlier, uh, it'll be better for everybody. It's better for shareholders. It's better for the founders. It's way better for employees. Give your employees liquidity sooner is better than later. Uh, and then the other thing it's good for is the economy. Like letting more people participate in the increase of value of these companies earlier is a good thing, right? If I can take a company public at 2 billion like Square or I think 2.9 when it went out and it goes to 70, think about all the people that have benefited from the rise in value of Square versus Square staying private for you know, five years and being worth 50 billion and then only increasing in value in 20 billion and the public markets capturing that value. So I just it's, just, it's just good all around. And oh, by the way, as a public company, you put permanent capital on your balance sheet, you lock in job creation for decades to come
0: it's just good for the economy overall. And we've also seen, I think, some companies that tried to go through the traditional IPO process and kind of fall apart under the scrutiny, right? And yeah, so we work. Exactly. We work at we and, work. And, and, and so I think that part of it is like uh, the SPAC stuff, we help people get there earlier and quicker and cheaper and all this stuff. But there is something to be said about the process works in terms of making sure that the best companies that are structured the right way get out into the market. And I think that that's one of the things that people always forget is like the stock market is uh, is a pretty good referee, right? Yes, yeah, sure. It gets inflated wait, wait, at times. Like, that, that was my question.
1: point. When people were talking about a bubble a year ago, I said, look at WeWork. The market was efficient. It didn't get public. People realized it wasn't what they thought it was. And um, you know, the other, the other side of that is I do think there are some specs that will be successful, just like, just, just like IPOs, just like anything else. I think there's a handful of managers, you know, you look at what Chamath and Adam are doing, you look at what Mark Stodd's doing at Dragoneer or Red Gersner at Altimeter. I mean, there's a handful of people who are professional investors that know what they're doing, who I think will find great companies to, to take public. Then there are another, you know, the other 80, 90% that I, I just, I just don't. I don't think there are that many great private companies that are going to choose that as an option. So I do think there's a little bit of investor arbitrage there for your listeners. I do think if you pick good managers and you you can buy uh, a, a SPAC, buy shares in a SPAC before a deal gets announced, if it's a high quality manager, you can make some money.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One of the ideas that you've had, uh, if we switch to kind of just Silicon Valley in general, uh, is this idea of the resilience of Silicon Valley and how that's changed over the last kind of two decades or so. Maybe explain uh, kind of your thought process there and how you see that.
1: Well, look, this has been a tough year. I mean, you know, pick your demographic, right? If you work in a factory and you got laid off, if you're a kid that's not getting to go to school right now, if you work in a tech company and you're working from home, like, it's been a rough year. And I think, um, you know, one of my hopes is that mental health becomes sort of a more acceptable topic for people to talk about because it's a very real issue. That I think this year in particular, and I think we're going to have some lasting effects from what we're going through right now. But having said that, what I have seen in our portfolio companies in particular is, is incredible. And I, you know, I was here for the dot com bubble, 9 11, I was here for 08 09. And those were like big punches where people went down for a while, like companies laid off staff, you felt like you were in a recession. And what I think we saw this year was, you know, tech companies in particular rebound very quickly. Uh, One, they were prepared for it. So the CEO said, okay, I got a pandemic, I'm going to deal with it. Very compassionate about dealing with their employees, which I just, we took a lot of of pride and even big companies like Salesforce and Twitter and Facebook um, that did the same thing. And then I think people were, you know, we are in an age today where we have Zoom, we have Slack, we have, you know, messaging and iPhones and all this technology. I mean, can you imagine if this happened 10 years ago? You and I wouldn't be having this conversation. Like there was no, there was no Zoom. We would have had to set up some kind of weird like Cisco WebEx. And so we, we kind of take for granted how seamlessly we all trans, transition into this work from home mode. But I've just been really heartwarmed. You know, look at all the companies that have come out and announced very pro you know, hey, take time off for your kids, take time to teach your kids, take time to help your kids with school. It just feels like to me, people have been pretty compassionate and then just resilient. And one of the reasons why I think the market has bounced back for tech stocks so quickly is a lot of people are seeing what I'm seeing, which is, in fact, I tweeted out this morning, a, 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 a chart that a Ryan Dennehy, one of our CEOs tweeted out in May, where he said, I'm predicting the Nike recovery. And it was like the, the swoosh logo where like, you know, Q2 was bad and then boom, Things took off, and that's what we're seeing. You know, for the majority of our companies, Q three was a record quarter, and Q four is looking really, really good. So I'm, 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 very optimistic heading into next year. We obviously have some huge challenges as a country, but you know, I'll tell you what we're seeing between the lines: tech companies are doing well, a lot of small businesses are doing well. Right? Try to buy a used car, try to buy a bike, try to buy an RV, try to buy a boat. Try to, you know, try. try there, there, there's a segment of the economy that is booming. You got obviously got a segment like travel and some others that are not doing well, but I'm I'm pretty optimistic heading into next year.
0: Yeah, uh, I want to move kind of around the world and a couple of other geographies. What are you seeing in India uh, and China specifically?
1: So India is one of those markets where people have been predicting a boom for twenty years, <laughs> and um, you know the the country. One of the things that people compare China and India. And you really had two very different approaches over the last 20 years. China took a very pro-capitalism government helping to drive the economy approach. India did not do as much of that. And so um, one of the reasons why we're bullish on India today versus maybe five or 10 years ago, is you have Reliance Geo that has been rolling out this basically free uh, wireless network all across the country and literally hundreds of millions of people coming into the wireless economy that were not there a year or two ago. And so that's an unlock that not a lot of people outside the country understand. But if you look at the money that's going in, you know, there's literally been billions and billions and billions of dollars that have gone got into Reliance Geo from U.S. companies as well as other companies. That is a signal of what's coming. And we believe that that is going to unlock a whole new part of the Indian economy with uh, telemedicine, you know, digital finance, e-commerce, all the pieces of the puzzle that have been thriving in our economy and in China. And so we're, we're, we're very optimistic about, about the road ahead, partially because of that, I think in China, um, you know, the, the interesting thing about China, obviously, they were hit with the coronavirus in January, but their economy today is basically back, right? Kids are in school, people are dining out, um, travel has rebounded back to pre-pandemic levels. Obviously, they took a very aggressive approach to how they dealt with with the pandemic, much more aggressive than we did, but it worked. And so one of the reasons why I'm optimistic about the U.S. is I think eventually we didn't take that approach, but I am Confident that eventually we will beat it, and when we do, I think you're going to see a booming economy in the U.S. Right? I mean, think about all you and I—we're going to be going to sporting events and concerts and traveling—and like the amount of money that's going to be unlocked in our our economy next year or in 22. uh, You know, hopefully it's next year. I think it's going to be pretty incredible, and so we we already see that in China. And you know, uh, my advice for investors generally is if you don't have a long position in some international equities that have exposure to China, you should. Like it's 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 going to be the world's largest economy. There's a lot of reasons why it will continue to thrive. You've got entire categories like healthcare that are still really early in that market. And there's just so much room for innovation that it just is smart to have some allocation there.
0: Absolutely. Uh, we recently saw Paystack, a company in uh, Nigeria uh, on the continent of Africa get acquired by Stripe. What, what are you guys seeing in, uh, in any of the African countries?
1: So we, to be fair, we don't have a presence there. Um, And frankly, don't, you know, it's just like, we always tell our LPs, like we've got 90 people in the firm, six GPs covering the markets we cover is a lot. Trying to add a new one would be hard, but there are some, uh, I interviewed Maya who runs Ingress Capital, um, amazing. I did a a live podcast with her. She's incredible. She's one of the venture capitalists that's doing a lot of cool things in Africa. So, and and she shared, I highly recommend people listen to it because she shared some amazing stats with me. I think something like, uh, 50 or 60% of the population in Africa is under the age of 35, Mm -hmm. like unbelievable. And so if you just assume that that demographic is going to have access to mobile devices and eventually have rising incomes, that is a pretty compelling market to be in. It's just not one, we're just not there today, but definitely listen to the podcast of Maya. She's incredible. One of the smartest people I've ever listened to period, but in particular on Africa
0: yeah that's awesome. Um, you've been investing for a long time, uh both in the public and private markets. Uh, what would you say are your biggest lessons learned over the years, uh, either by your biggest wins or your biggest losses?
1: Yeah, you know it's funny. Um, <laughs> one of my biggest lessons learned is when the market goes down, it will eventually go up and I remember I was talking to Ryan Dennehy back in March. I think it was like March fifteenth or fourteenth or sixteenth. And, you know, we were sort of having a question about layoffs and raising capital. And everybody was pretty panicked at the time, if you remember, in our country. And I said, look, Ryan, I don't know whether this pandemic lasts for three months or three years, but I do know on the other side, things are going to be good. Now, I don't know if that's 2025 or June, but based on what I saw in 0809 and what I saw in 2001... On the other side, the US economy, and like, I'm not the only one to say this, Warren Buffett said it, don't bet against the American economy. But so I invested more money in March than I've invested in the last five years combined. Now, I didn't know when it would pay off. It turned out it paid off very quickly. But that was a lesson that I learned from 0809. I didn't have any money in 0809. But, you know, if you just look at the cloud space, which is, you know, Salesforce and others, there, there's been $4 trillion of market value created in the last 10 years in the cloud space since 2009. So if you just threw a dart at the wall and invested in every software company that was public in 2009 and bought every IPO since then, you'd be one of the richest people on the planet. So I, I think that lesson is super informative, right? Just don't bet against the American economy. Pick sectors and trends that you think have a five, 10-year horizon and invest in them and don't try and time the market. That's number one. Back to your point about Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin peaked, 20,000 dropped. It's back at 11. If you had dollar cost averaged in, you made money. I heard you telling Jim Cramer that. Same thing happens in the market. And so if you have names you like or companies you like or trends that you believe in, buy those equities and when they drop, add a little bit more, right? You don't have to go all in day one. But, you know, like I've owned Salesforce since it went public. You know, I wish I owned more. I think I only put in like $1,500 because I didn't have a lot of money back then, but it's been a good one to own. And so if you, you know, and there are companies coming public today that are still early in their life cycle, right? You look at a Twilio or a Square or an Okta and those are sort of four or five years ago. There are versions of those companies coming public today that investors can buy, and say, look, it might look really expensive today. If it drops because of you know election turmoil or market turmoil, maybe I'll add some more. But over time, you'll make money in the long run buying those companies. And in particular, I'm super bullish on on software. Um, you know, just go and if you if you want to just be simple, go long QQQ and WCLD right? Wisdom Cloud just tracks the, the Bessemer software index. QQQ, obviously, is the NASDAQ. Just buy those two things. You'll make money over the next 10 years. Um, and then the last one I think we've all learned as investors is let your winners run. I mean, the, the, the value creation that has happened post-IPO for tech companies over the last decade is just astonishing, right? 80% of the value for companies happens post-IPO. So a lot of people a lot of people in the venture industry used to distribute at the lockup, right? Six months after the company goes public, lockup expires, they distribute all their shares and then all the value gets created. <laughs> and so what a lot of venture firms have learned is, hey, let's not distribute the lockup, let's maybe take our time because so much value is gonna get created post-IPO because companies put capital on their balance sheet, growth rates in many cases are accelerating. I tweeted out yesterday, growth rates are actually accelerating for software companies. And then they get better. The branding gets stronger. They get better. And then if you look at like what Jeff Lawson's done at Twilio, Jeff has been using his currency to acquire companies. He acquired SendGrid, and then he made another acquisition just recently. So, and you know, he's building a powerhouse. I mean, I'm super long Twilio. It's one of my largest positions. It has been almost since the company went public. I believe in him. I believe in the market they're in. And then I see him making moves that say, okay, he's not going to just sit back and sit on his ass and watch the stock price go up. He's going to be aggressive and try and build a, a category defining company. There are others like that that are coming to market. And I just think, you know, like I was telling our I had a bunch of conversations with our LPs recently. And they said, what do you think the next five years looks like? And I said, guys, I have to be honest with you. I've been here for 25 years. It's hard to not be the most bullish I've ever been on investing in technology. Like you talk about coming out of an economic pandemic, you look at the SMB tech boom, you look at the rise of, of incomes around the world, you look at digital banking, digital cash, uh, digital healthcare, like all these incredible trends. And then, oh, by the way, there's going to be a whole class of entrepreneurs that spin up new kinds of companies out of this pandemic that we haven't even thought of yet. Like, how, how can you not be bullish right now?
0: Yeah. And I think that it's uh, really the pandemic has just accelerated trends that were already underway, right? It it was like all this technology stuff, people knew, hey, this is going to be valuable. But you're literally just seeing people now forced to adopt it. And that's part of the acceleration in the growth trends, right? But it's also, uh, I think now what you're doing is it's kind of the creativity comes out of constraints, right? And so people are being forced to, hey, I got to get a job, right? I got to solve one of my problems. And that's where you see a bunch of company creation as well. Yeah. And think about all the actions, like people tried telemedicine for the first time,
1: right? We went from like 5% of people that tried telemedicine to the 40% in 90 days. Why? Because they couldn't go to the doctor, right? You had people who, um, you know, the e-commerce penetration in the U.S. went from 16 to 40%. Like why? Because people couldn't go into stores. You know, you have, think about all the people who've bought home fitness equipment, a Peloton or a Tonal or whatever, like some of them will lose interest post pandemic and say, Yeah, I'm going to go back to a 24 hour fitness. But a lot of them won't. A very high percentage of them won't say, Hey, you know what? I love working out at home. You're going to have a whole new category of entrepreneurs in the fitness category, I believe, right? Yoga instructors and fitness instructors who are like, Why am I, pay, why am I making 15 bucks an hour to go teach at a fitness shop when I can teach my own classes on Zoom and make 10 grand a month? So, like, there's, a, there's an entire economy of entrepreneurs that are going to sprout up to your point, out of necessity, like they didn't have a choice. Like it sucks that we had to shock our economy the way we did. And it's been brutal, devastating. But I think out of it, there's a whole wave of entrepreneurship that's going to just be, and back to that point I made earlier, 40%
0: more new business applications this year than last year. Like that's crazy. That's, that's astonishing. You've got a shirt on that says go long and uh, that couldn't be a more fitting, uh, thought, I think, uh, kind of mantra given uh, your bullishness. But, but I think that the key here really is the data supports a lot of this. And um, if you kind of believe that uh, humans will constantly improve and, and push forward the innovation, like being long is the right way to look at every sector.
1: Yeah, and, and and I think it's, you know, we, we have these shirts because we tell entrepreneurs we want to go long, right? We want to back entrepreneurs that want to build, you know, enduring companies that will be very large. But I think the same thing's true in the market, right? I had a friend of mine text me last week. He's like, hey, do you think I should sell my Zoom? It's had a big run. I'm like, hmm, I don't know. I'm not selling. I'm super bullish on Eric. I think the market they're they're in is way bigger than people think. And I think he'll innovate in ways that people haven't thought of. And then, of course, this week, they came out and announced a whole platform with Zaps." And you could see an entire economy, you know, some people are comparing it to the iPhone app store. Like what if, what if he creates the next iteration of the iPhone app store and it becomes a trillion dollar company, right? I mean, how many people sold Amazon at hundred billion and we're like, gosh, this thing is, it's crazy. I mean, you can't build a hundred billion dollar retailer because they didn't see AWS coming. Well, AWS alone is worth a trillion dollars today. So I just think when you, when you are long with these exceptional entrepreneurs who are willing to take risks and you give them capital, right, they once they go public, they have capital to work with. Holy crap, hold those positions. I mean, unless you have to sell, you know, and in particular, if tax rates go up, and you're paying a higher tax rate to sell than you are today, I think you're gonna see a lot of people owning these these names for years and making a lot of money in tech stocks. I just it multiples could compress. But like, we also have to remember, like in the software space, everybody goes, Oh, my God, the multiples are crazy. I'm like, well, yeah, the multiples are based on the forecasts, and the forecasts are low. They're all beating the numbers. So, if you go back and adjust those multiples, they don't look that crazy. So, and then just to think about the upside of the economy over the next few years. Of course, we have like, you know, geopolitical risks, there's currency risk, we're taking on a crazy amount of debt, we have elections. There's a lot of uncertainty to be nervous about. But, like, at a ground level,
0: man, I'm pretty bullish. I love it. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I ask the same two questions to everyone before I finish up, and then you'll get to ask me one. First is, uh, what's the most important book you've ever read?
1: Uh, man, I, I I love so many uh, books about entrepreneurs, but um, I, I would go back to one my dad gave me when I was a teenager, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. I just think it's like, it's super basic advice, but it, it grounds you. And, and there are things in there that you'll learn and, and live by the rest of your life. It's timeless because it works, right? And, and it's just there's so many times when I think back to there's an example in that book of, you know, a guy on a, on a subway or a bus and his kids are acting up and, you know, people around him are looking at him like your kids are, you know, we are a bad parent. And then somebody realizes that his wife had just passed away. And so having the compassion to think about what other people are going through, particularly in a time like we're in right now, it's just a, it's, it's a timeless lesson, right? We have people out here preaching all these things like do this, do this, do this but they don't understand the circumstances that other people are in. And so there's just, there's just a lot of timeless lessons in that book.
0: Yeah. I love that. Uh, The second question is more fun aliens, believer or (laughs) non-believer.
1: I think, you know, if you think back to like Christopher Columbus landing in America and thinking that he was in India, like throughout history, we've underestimated what was beyond us. And so I think the idea that we think we're the only ones is just kind of crazy. I don't, you know, I don't believe there's like aliens in my neighborhood, but like, I do believe there are other life forms out there. And so I, I think you'd be crazy. If, if you don't believe that, then you kind of don't believe in research and technology and science and all the things that have been progressing our world forward. I don't know. What about you?
0: Oh, I definitely believe I, I was going to be shocked if somebody who believes so much in the technology and innovation yeah, didn't believe yeah. in aliens. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: I don't think like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm like hanging out with them next to them at the grocery store, but I think we'd be incredibly naive to not think, to think we figured it all out.
0: Yeah. And, and I also think it's uh it's not only hard to understand kind of what's possible. It's also just hard for us to fathom the things we do know. Right. I always say like everyone, you know, thinks of aliens as something that is, let's say in space, there's a lot of stuff we don't know about our own oceans. Right. So when when you kind of like put that in relationship, then you think, okay, we kind of have this idea of how big the galaxy is, for example. Right. But like, we just know it's big, but when you hear the numbers, you're like, okay, like I have no, you know, kind of comparison point to understand how big that really is. Right, And so when you start to hear things like, um, I think it was uh, Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson said that like, in order to reach some parts of uh, certain planets, you would basically have to put children Uh, like, you know, newborn children on a spaceship, send them, teach them everything while they're in flight. Then they would have to have like grandkids at some point. And then those grandkids eventually like reach a planet, right? (laughs) And it's like, okay, that seems pretty far. Like those rockets seem to go pretty fast. So Uh, it's
1: just kind of crazy. And I'm not willing to go as far as Elon Musk saying we're living in a simulation, although I do love his theory. Um, I just think it's crazy to assume like if you assume we figured everything out, Like that's a, that's a tough way to go through life. Yeah. Depressing. Like, like be an optimist. Like nobody thought we could land a rocket. We could shoot a rocket into space and land it on a little platform in the ocean. And then he did it. Everybody's like, oh yeah. Like that took what? 50 years of space travel to figure that out. And then somebody figured it out. So it's like, I don't know. And it's, it's part of what makes life great. Like there's new things you discover and learn. And so I just like, you know, do I want to go hang out with aliens? Not necessarily, but do I believe there are people out there? Yes. I,
0: uh, I, 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 uh, think I see eye to eye with you at all. So yeah. uh, you could ask me one question to finish up. What do you got for me? So you, you meet some incredible people through this process and doing all the conversations that you have.
1: What's, I don't know, what's one big takeaway you've had over the last year or two from some of the smartest people you've interacted with. And I've listened to a lot of your your episodes. I mean, just incredible, diverse personalities that you've had on from, you know, Dave Portnoy to Jim Cramer to. Uh, Michael Saylor uh, what, what, what's like what what pops into your mind like something you've learned from all of that So take away maybe you didn't have a year or two ago
0: Here's the scary part is it's not so much things that maybe are like groundbreaking. It's like almost like a return to the basics, right? So it's things like uh, the most successful people work their asses off. Like I have yet to have somebody come on and be like, hey, guess what? Like, here's the secret. You know, I did this one thing. Now I'm a billionaire. <laughs> like, right, right. There's not a single person who, who, uh, who's done that. Um, so, kind of hard work. Uh, two, I would say uh, very much like original thinkers or kind of first principles thinking um, is very clear when somebody uh, has been able to find opportunity by uh, using that. Uh, a third one, and we were talking about this earlier, is like just like the open-mindedness uh, is very refreshing. And I'm actually surprised usually by uh, how open-minded, how intellectually curious the most successful people are. Um, they are very much, uh, I know nothing, teach me, right? And then, you know, Cramer was, was a good example. There's, there's many others. Um, and I think that maybe the perception of these people would be like, oh, they think they know everything, but it's actually the exact opposite. And then the last thing uh, is how kind of compassionate people are, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the enjoyment for me in in the, in the podcast is actually the time before or after the podcast where I'm yeah. kind of talking about other things. Uh, and, you know, during the episodes, there's a lot of kind of focus on business and investing and, and the things that, that people uh, kind of come to the podcast listen for. But before and after, I've heard incredible stories of, uh, you know, both things that the guest has done for their friends or family or whatever, but also in reverse, like they'll say to me, um, you know, Hey, here's something that somebody that's well known did for me. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, um, Patrick O'Shaughnessy on his podcast, uh, the final question, yeah, his last question. Yeah. Yeah. It's that. always like, what's the nicest thing someone's ever done for you. And, yeah. and I love that question because, uh, the stories you hear sometimes, I mean, there's always like the easy stuff, which is like, hey, my parents, right? Like my parents did everything to get me here. Um, but then you hear stories of like, whoa, that was like way out, you know, on the side. And and um, you know, we we saw uh recently Ryan Caldbeck uh came out with uh, you know, this story and, and basically kind of to your point of like reveals a whole side of um, you know, stress and, and obstacles that he was overcoming that nobody knew about. And, and I yep. think that you know, your point just on you never know what people are going through. You, you, yep. never, you, know, you never want to assume things. And uh, it's a hard lesson to kind of keep in the back of your head. But I think that, again, the people who have been the most successful in life, like they've got a pretty good um, you know, grounding in, the, in those types of principles. The other thing I've learned in the last five years, maybe it's
1: just an age thing, is you can have... The the flip side of think of something somebody's done for you, think of something you've done for someone else. You, You can have an outsized impact on somebody's life by taking an interest, taking some specific actions and following up. And so I've tried to, in the last few years, deliberately pick out a couple of folks that I thought I could help. And it's been it's been very rewarding to have them come back to me and say, Hey, I don't know whether you did this intentionally or not, but you made an impact. And I think if more, you know, if, if everyone did that, imagine what would happen. Right. And so I think there are a lot of people who do it naturally, but I think when you're maybe in your mid thirties and early forties, you don't realize, cause you're still in that climbing mode. And now I'm in my later forties. I'm like, well, how do I turn around and help some other folks? Not like I'm, you know, I'm not Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, but like there are things that I can do that can make. And, and so when somebody comes back to you and says, hey, that was huge, it's, uh, it's pretty rewarding. So I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think about how do we scale that? How do we do more of that? How do we encourage more of that? Because it's not just philanthropy, right? It's behind the scenes, act, scenes actions of actually taking an interest in somebody's life and trying to help them be successful.
0: Yeah. And, and I think part of it too is like, it's not just a money thing, right? Like, no, like that's one piece no. of it. It's literally, Hey, that person who made an introduction for you, that person who, you know, responded to an email with a little bit of advice. And, and frankly, here, here's the crazy part is I've literally seen um, people that I know who pitched a venture capitalist as kind of an extreme example. And the venture capital said, this is a dumb idea. You're basically wasting your time for X, Y, Z reason. Like you, you're a smart person, go work on something else. And then they come back and it may take them a month or two to kind of realize that, but they go, Hey, you know what? Like you saved me three years of running down a path right. that ended up like I would have wasted my time. Right. And there's always this delicate line of like, you know, yeah, I would to- say that may not be the way to say it, but yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, again, overgeneralizing yes, kind of the the message. Right. But, but it's this thing of, um, understanding and being honest and, and, and kind of trying to help people. I think that's the, the thing, like genuinely trying to help people, uh, there's, the world could do better having more of it, right? Yeah. And so my thing is, how do we create more of that? How do we get, because I'm
1: amazed how I have a lot of friends who are very successful, who I don't think realize how much they could do for other people. And they're like, oh yeah, I give, I give money to this. I give money to this and give money giving this. But it's like, man, you're, you're so good at what you do. If you just took an interest in three or four people and tried to help them. And, and most people do, to your point, I think most people do that. Um, but I, I, it's just something I've learned. Maybe I'm late to the party, like just taking a conscious interest in some people on an individual basis and trying to help them be successful has been, it's been incredibly rewarding. So it kind of goes along Patrick's question of like, you know, not uh, cause a lot of people, you know, like we all talk, like I didn't, you know, I didn't start at home plate. Like I had a lot of people who helped me be successful. My parents, mentors, advisors, investors, you know, and you sort of look back and I'm always conscious of telling them, Hey, thank you. You made a real difference in my life. But then you feel like, okay, I'm now in a position where I got to do that. So how do I consciously pick some people and follow up, right? Not just have that one meeting where you give somebody some advice, but follow up and say, hey, how's it going? Can I make an intro for you here? Can I do this? You know, because that person can then, it's just, it's such a game changer, right? Opening doors, giving somebody that extra shove when they need it is such a game changer.
0: I'm going to leave you with one last question. Is Dartmouth basketball ever going to win an NCAA (laughs) championship ever again? or the
1: first one uh, we're, we're uh yeah it'd be our first uh it's gonna be tough we, <laughs> we we uh no someday someday we'll get back i think um i think I, I might get the year wrong i think it was 1942 dartmouth was in the final four so i have in my twitter bio you know working to get back to the final four but it's it's been a while uh, <laughs> but no I, I love the program i love the school and I, I i hope we can someday i love i love sports i love athletics i think it teaches you a lot of discipline and and I'm rooting for I'm rooting for the team. So I
0: love it. All right, Jeff, listen, thank you so much for doing this. I think people are really gonna enjoy it. We'll have to do it again in the future. Thanks, man.